0: i listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of back real soon by fuzz aldrin this brand new cleveland group is our featured ohio music artist tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you more about them and let you listen to that entire song but right now let's throw another log on the fire campers let's dig up a new ohio mystery I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years on these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. In Cincinnati, the neighborhood of Northside is known for its bohemian collection of students, artists, young professionals, and the GLBT community. It had been in serious decline in the middle of the 20th century, but saw a resurgence when city living became trendy again and people appreciated its proximity to universities, Mount Airy Forest, the highway system, and downtown. Also here is Spring Grove Cemetery, the third largest cemetery in the country and a national historic landmark. But historically, the area was known as Cumminsville, the name it was given when settlers put down roots here back in 1805. The canal came through here later, bringing workmen and their families to the region. Then the railroads came, attracting more hard-living, hard-drinking residents. By the 1870s, when it was annexed by the city of Cincinnati, locals called it Helltown because of its reputation for rowdy taverns. In 1904, a series of attacks in Cumminsville left three women dead, a dozen terrorized survivors, and a community on edge. The assailant, described as a short, heavy set man in a slouched hat, always wielding a hatchet or some other lethal object, was never caught. Then, six years later, deja vu two more women dead in gruesome slashings. And though it it seems unlikely their killer was the same man as the one who had left that bloody trail in 1904, the small neighborhood was now haunted by five homicides no one could solve. Tonight's episode is about the Cumminsville murders. began on a Sunday morning, May the 1st, 1904, though nobody would know this was the beginning for months. At 6 a.m., a Cincinnati freight train engineer started his day with a shock. On the tracks of the Big Four Railroad, east of Dane Avenue, he found a dying woman, her left leg severed at the knee. A large bruise was on the back of her head, behind her ear. She was still breathing. The woman was taken to the city hospital, where she regained consciousness long enough to mutter a mysterious plea. Oh, girls, don't do that. Please don't. Then she used her last breath to give her name. She was Mary MacDonald. That clue was enough to lead authorities to the south end of town and a home on East 7th Street, where the 31-year-old Mary lived at the home of Mrs. William Pritchard. Mary had a tragic past. She'd fallen in love with her sister's husband, then became his housekeeper when her sister died. He promised marriage, then married another and moved to California. Mary went west and tried to find him, but returned to Cincinnati when she couldn't and started drinking to ease her pain. Police began to piece together Mary's last day. She had left her home Saturday afternoon in high spirits, dressed in her best. She had taken the streetcar several miles into Cumminsville and was seen at Chester Park. That was an amusement resort on Spring Grove Avenue. Then she went to the home of some friends she knew in the neighborhood, the Stagmans, She stayed until around 11 p.m. when John Stagman drove Mary to her streetcar connection on College Hill and Main Street. That was the last time she was seen before the railroad worker found her. She was just four blocks from where she had been dropped off. Authorities theorized that maybe Mary was drunk. It was late on a Saturday night, after all, in an area known for its taverns and maybe she'd stumbled into the path of an oncoming train. John Stagman insisted Mary was perfectly sober when he left her. Still, life went on, and Mary's mysterious death faded from prominence. Now fast forward four months to early in the morning of October the 2nd, when another passerby makes another unfortunate discovery. A woman's body lay in a clump of weeds in an area of town known as Lover's Lane, an unimproved continuation of Fergus Street. She was about 250 feet from the railroad tracks and a few hundred yards from the scene of Mary McDonald's demise. She had two deep wounds across her face, and the base of her skull was fractured. She was Louise Mueller friends called her Lulu. The 16-year-old Lulu worked at a shoe factory, and she was popular with the boys. She had several bows. The night of her death, she had made plans to visit one of them, a young man named Frank Eastman. On her way to see him, she stopped for a few moments to listen to a speech by a socialist orator on the corner near her home. Then she continued on, She was last seen around 9.30 p.m. Initially, authorities wanted to believe she had simply been struck by a passing train on the Cincinnati, Hamilton, and Dayton Railroad. Then she probably crawled to the spot where she was found. But then her cause of death was changed to possible homicide. Someone had seen a man running from the lane about 9.30 Friday night. And suddenly it seemed an option that the pretty shop girl had been attacked. There was also this story. When spectators gathered at the grisly scene where Lulu was found, a squat husky man with a heavy growth of dark beard was among them. And he repeatedly kept saying in a loud voice, it was an accident. It was an accident. He was ignored. Police quickly arrested a couple of men who knew Lulu, William Wilson, a painter and paper hanger, and Theodore Salman, a one-legged peddler. The two men would stay in jail until December, when a grand jury decided there just was not enough evidence to hold them. But while Wilson and Salman were still sitting in jail, Cincinnati police were confronted with yet another homicide in Cumminsville. It was November the 3rd, and a streetcar conductor found the body of a young woman in a vacant lot at the Spring Grove Cemetery near Winton Place. She was 150 feet east of the streetcar tracks. And initially, police wanted to call it another terrible accident. But after a coroner's examination, there was no mistaking this for anything but murder. The woman's head had been bashed in. Her teeth were missing, her face a pool of blood. She held in her hand a transfer ticket that had been punched at 9.40 p.m. A bloody trail and heavy boot prints in mud showed where she had been dragged into the open field. Her name was Alma Steinway, an 18-year-old telephone operator. She sang in her local Episcopal Church choir, and lived with her widowed mother and brothers. The day of her death, Alma had finished her work at the Park Exchange at 9 p.m. and walked down Hamilton Avenue to catch a streetcar home. The night was thick with fog. Her boyfriend had called her at work and wanted to pick her up for the night, but she had been to a dance the night before and was tired. She just wanted to go to bed. Frank Limey. A conductor who knew her as a regular saw Alma on the first streetcar she took. Detectives theorized she was attacked while waiting for the second car. And then this while spectators gathered where Alma's body was found, the dark, squat man who had acted so oddly at the Mueller murder scene was back again. People recognized him from that first time and they alerted police. But when police went to question him, he was gone. Alma's employer put up a $1,000 reward for the capture of her killer. And newspapers quickly started connecting those murders, not only with each other, but to that mysterious death of Mary McDonald. Maybe Mary hadn't been struck by a train after all. There were so many similarities all pretty young women dead from gruesome head wounds, all found near train or streetcar tracks and within a single mile radius of each other, and all within sight of Spring Grove Cemetery. There was more. As fear began to grip Cumminsville, other women came forward to share their stories of close calls they had escaped. The same night Alma was killed, At another trolley stop not far away, Dorothy Hannaford said she left a meeting of the Young Women's Christian Association and was waiting for a trolley to take her to Winton Place when a short, rough-looking man jumped out of the bushes and grabbed her arm. Hannaford said the man was tugging her toward the tracks but fled when the trolley car appeared. One hour after that incident, two neighbors, a Mrs. Unkeback and a Mrs. Haggardorn said they fought off a man who jumped out at them. They pummeled him till he fled. And the night after Alma's murder, three women, the Weimer sisters and Mamie Roddy, were passing by Spring Grove Cemetery when a man leapt at them from the graveyard's shadows. He began hitting the girls and pinned one to the ground, but he was ridiculously outnumbered. The women pulled his ears and poked at his eyes until he ran away. History is
2: complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction,
1: Another case, a Miss Claussing, the daughter of Gardener Henry Claussing, was on her way to a party when she crossed a bridge near Elmore Street and was jumped by a man who snatched her purse then struck her in the head with a hatchet. She fell onto the railroad tracks where she was rescued by a group of men who carried her to a nearby saloon. And on November 6th, That was three days after the attack on Alma. Mrs. Harry C. Wins was home alone at 11 p.m. when she heard a knock at the door. A short, thickly built man asked for food, and she turned him away. Later, she stepped out into the backyard where the man was waiting. He grabbed her, and she screamed just as her husband was returning home from a trip to the store. Harry Wins chased the man with a shotgun, but he escaped into the darkness. There were more reports from Mrs. William Wurgle, Mrs. Robert Kelly, Mrs. Philip Gerbig, and Josephine Hewitt, all saying a short, stout man sprang at them from within the Spring Grove Cemetery, but in each of their cases, they were able to fend him off. The Cincinnati Enquirer Reflected the fear in the area with a story that tied the attacks to a single assailant. Quote Everything points to the presence in this community of a human vampire, a fiend whose joy is in witnessing the death struggle of his innocent prey. He committed the deeds in lonely and unfrequented spots, for no more gruesome or weird places for the perpetration of murder could be selected than the localities in which Mary MacDonald, Lulu Mueller, and Alma Steinway met their doom. But just as fast as the flurry of attacks had come, they stopped. That last victim, Josephine Hewitt, had started carrying a pistol in her purse, and when the man attacked her, she produced it. As he turned and fled, she emptied her gun in his general direction. Police couldn't find any evidence of any of those bullets finding a target, but the man some were calling the Cincinnati Ripper was gone, and Cumminsville eventually returned to its calm routine. Over the next few years, there were suspects from time to time. Well, maybe not suspects as much as more victims. In 1905, a man named Marshall Edward Rising who lived in the Cincinnati neighborhood of Carthage, killed himself. He had been hounded by children who kept pointing him and whispering that he knew about the murder of Alma Steinway. After his death, Marshall's wife recounted how their children would come home from school, demanding answers about the rumors their classmates kept repeating. Mrs. Rising told a reporter, they have no right to link his name with the case. He had nothing to do with it. For his children's sake, it was cruelly, inhumanly wrong to say such things. Then in 1907, authorities detained a man named Crystal Coble, the 22-year-old painter in Columbus. But Koble insisted he'd come from St. Louis less than a year earlier, and had never been to Cincinnati except passing through on the train. They eventually released him. In 1908, a man named John Hill, a 28-year-old recently released from a Kansas reformatory, reportedly confessed to his cellmate that he was responsible for the Cumminsville murders. But after a brief investigation, police concluded Hill was simply reciting facts he'd read in the newspaper. And then, two years after that, a new stretch of terror for the residents of Cumminsville. It began New Year's Eve, just before the dawn of 1910, and two boys found the body of a woman near the railroad tracks off Hopple Street. Her mouth had been gagged, her throat cut, and her face beaten and bloodied. She was Anna Lloyd, the 36-year-old secretary for the Wilbur Hanna Lumber Company. Anna had left work at 5.30 p.m. the night before, presumably headed to the trolley car near the Spring Grove Cemetery. Police theorized that's where the killer found her. She was alive and fighting when the assailant dragged her to the more remote location but Anna was no match for the meat cleaver he carried. Anna's purse was later found a mile away, her money gone. Cincinnati's city council announced a reward of $2,500, and members of the lumber company issued a reward of 5000 Anna's location near the railroad tracks Harken back to that terrible fall of 1904 and that bloody succession of attacks. But there were differences. Anna was gagged and her throat cut. The other victims had been bludgeoned to death. For a time, police detained Henry Cook, a butcher who was identified by two girls as having been seen leaving the scene of the crime. But he was later released and then a fifth murder. On October the 26th of 1910, the body of the 26-year-old Mary Hackney was found in her cottage on Dane Street. That wasn't far from the area where Mary McDonald lay dying at the beginning of this terrible era. Mary Hackney had moved to the city with her husband Harley in 1906 from Louisville, Kentucky and they operated a boarding house. She was discovered by her husband and a 16-year-old boarder, Charles Eckert, both of whom worked at a local lumber yard. They had departed at 6 that morning, leaving behind Mary, dressed in her dotted blue gingham dress and humming a song. They returned home after work, just before 6 p.m., to a dark and quiet house with the front door standing open. Inside, they found Mary lying in the sitting room. The coroner determined she had died with the first blow of an axe to the crown of her head. But post-mortem, the killer had gone to the trouble of pulling out a razor to slash her throat ear to ear and leaving other cut marks on her body and face. Police found a bloody carpenter's hatchet on the front porch, But Mary's husband and the boarder both insisted the axe had been used to kill a chicken for dinner the Sunday before. This murder was obviously very different than the rest, having taken place in home and in the light of day, not a dark remote location by train tracks or by a killer who leapt from a graveyard. So it's impossible to know how many killers were at work in Cumminsville. Was Mary MacDonald's killer in the spring of 1904 the same as the man who terrorized the neighborhood that fall? Was Anna Lloyd's attack on New Year's Eve of 1910 connected in any way to the home invasion of Mary Hackney several months later? We'll almost certainly never know.
0: And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this in every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Fuzz Aldrin is a new band formed in Cleveland with some veteran musicians and performers. And this year, they have been performing all over the region to promote their first album, Peach Fuzz. The band was started by lifelong friends Zach Asher and David Slane who grew up across the street from each other in Sola. They bonded through music, adding a drummer, Tom Middleton, and picked up a bassist in Brian Lawson. They formed Fuzz Aldrin and started looking for a new vocalist, which they found in Hayden Brook. They released Peach Fuzz in April, featuring elements of blues, rock, and indie. If you want to keep up with them, find their Facebook page. We'll include a link in our episode notes.
0: So here's Back Real Soon by Fuzz Aldrin, turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.